We believe that alcoholism is a disease and that Alcoholics Anonymous is one solution to that disease. I'm here to bring you the voices of its members. Everyone that comes on the show, including myself, is an active member and has found recovery in the rooms of AA. As you listen, please take what works for you and leave the rest. Hello, my name is Judy Ponzio. I'm an alcoholic, and my sobriety date is January 2nd, 1990. And for that, I'm truly grateful. As it happens today, it is my 32nd birthday, uh, exactly the day that I'm doing this recording. And so that's really special to me. Um, and uh, and my sobriety is um, probably the only thing in my life that I've ever done for 32 years. Uh, honestly, squeaky clean, uh, not skirting the edges or trying to find an exception to the rule. And um, that's really important to me. So uh, Alcoholics Anonymous has given me a way of life that uh, I couldn't even imagine my life at almost 66 years old. Uh, I have uh, two grown children, ages 34 and 36 who were two and four when I got sober. And I have an amazing relationship with both of them. I just spent the day with uh, our daughter and uh, even my ex-husband. I talked to two days ago uh, on the phone, just wishing him well, wishing him a happy new year uh, with the new girlfriend in his life. And we have a very functional, dysfunctional family. And it's all due to Alcoholics Anonymous that uh, I'm able to maintain wonderful relationships, wonderful, loving, honest relationships with the people in my life. And, um, and that I realize that time is um, probably my most valuable resource at this time and, and age in, in my life that, you know, I choose to do things that have meaning. Uh, otherwise, I just don't do them. They just you know, I, I don't, I want to have a life that, that matters, that is intentional. And, um, and that's why I said yes to doing this recording. So, uh, let me tell you a little bit about what I was like, what happened and, and what I'm like now. And there, let me tell you entirely different. Um, I got here at uh, 33 years old, just not, um, I think I got to Alcoholics Anonymous early, not that much uh, devastation uh, had happened, devastation, humiliation, degradation, all of that stuff. It it just hadn't happened too bad yet. And um, but I realized that I was probably just right around the corner and that I could have it uh, if I if I decided not to live by spiritual principles any longer. Um, I could have it in a heartbeat. And uh, what happened for me was that I used to drink and get high uh, just to deal with life. If if I was overwhelmed, uh, if I was happy, if I was celebrating, if I was sad, uh, if I felt like uh, somebody had done something wrong to me, whatever it was, if it was a grocery day, whatever it was, I would drink and get high. Uh, my, my drugs of choice were cocaine and weed and, uh, 
pretty much white wine. I loved wine. Uh, but I also did um, Cavassier uh, and really anything else. Uh, that if that's, I mean, tequila was always a favorite too. And I, I vowed never to drink tequila again, which I broke that vow several times. But um, what happened was, uh, you know, I had a good job. My husband had a good job. We, we lived in uh, Walnut, California, had a beautiful two-story house. It did not look like we were alcoholics sliding down the, the mudslide and uh, that we were dealing cocaine out of our house with our two little kids. But that's exactly what we were doing. And we never got caught. And I never, I don't, I have never been arrested. Uh, I've never been stopped for suspicion of anything other than breaking a traffic violation. And my family, my family of origin, when I told them that I was an alcoholic, they didn't really believe it. They thought that, oh, you know, it's like a self-help thing. She's into this support group thing. You know, she's not really alcoholic. After 32 years, they have just come to accept that I'm an alcoholic, that I think I'm an alcoholic, and that this life works a lot better for me uh, when I'm involved with you guys. Um, I don't have quite so many problems, and I'm actually able to be of service to my family now instead of a problem to my family. Uh, so I, I, I disappeared from my family a lot so that they wouldn't see what I was doing. I showed up on special occasions only. I was not an every Sunday for dinner kind of girl. And uh, I certainly wasn't calling my family every week to check in and see how they were doing and what was going on in their life. I pretty much stayed invisible. Uh, when I, um, I started drinking when I was about 15, 16 years old. And I did it for fun. I did it for attention. I had a, a, a surprise birthday party for one of my girlfriends when she turned 16. I invited all of our girlfriends over and we went on a scavenger hunt through the neighborhood for beer and toilet paper. And then we proceeded to toilet paper this boy's house that uh, we all had a crush on. And we got stinking drunk. And my parents didn't mind if I drank as long as I kept it in the house you know, or close by in the neighborhood. They they just didn't have a problem. You know, I'm a, a, a baby boomer, one of the last uh, years of baby boomers, I think. And uh, my parents were of that mindset that you could drink if you stayed in the house. So I never had a problem with hiding anything from them. But I uh, I did start drinking at school. And uh, that was back when there were vans with people's names on them. And there was this boy that uh, we were in the same uh, class together and his last name was Morrison. And he had this big yellow van called Van Morrison, real original, huh? So we would go into his van at nutrition break and I would chug down a Colt 45 because I, I always wanted fast, more, Bigger, best, most, now, instant. Those are all favorite words of mine. And so I figured a Colt 45 was the least amount of calories, the most amount of alcohol, 
that I could get down the quickest. And then I went to New Testament as literature class because I had this boyfriend that uh, was of a different religion. And I could tell he was getting serious. He was four years older than I was. And uh, I wanted to know what I wanted to believe uh, before I got too much more you know, entangled with him. And so I took this New Testament literature class. And of course, there were a bunch of born again Christians. You know, that was the 70s. That was the Jesus movement. And um, and I got involved with them. They were nice people. They asked me if I wanted to go out to lunch. And here I was drunk. And of course, I said, yes. And so I would hang out with these Christians. And, you know, as Typically, you know, the people you hang out with are the people that you're going to um, most emulate. And I started, you know, really believing in what they were talking about. And uh, I, you know, became a born-again Christian. And so whatever that means um, to you, it, it meant a change of a lifestyle for me. And so I threw away my drugs. Uh, I threw away my my booze. I stopped drinking. And I really tried to practice those spiritual principles and go to Bible studies and go to church and hang out with, you know, these nice people. But I just didn't feel like I fit. And, uh, and that was years. Years went by. Um, I ended up getting married, not to that guy I was dating. I ended up getting married to his best friend because we just kept hanging out after I broke up with him. And one thing led to another. And as an 18 year old, you know, who was told, don't ever have sex until you're married, started having sex. And so then I, I just figured that I needed to get married. So at 19, just barely turned 19, I got married for the first time. And uh, my drinking and using kind of stopped or slowed down for, for a while. I was still going to church, uh, actively involved uh, with a community of people. And I was really trying to live this other lifestyle, but that just didn't stick for me. Um, I saw other people that it did work for, but I wasn't one of them. And so I started to find uh, other people who liked to party. And my marriage was, you know, not doing really well. It wasn't based on a whole lot. You know, it was just based on, oh, we're having sex, so we should get married. And, you know, at 19, um, I took more time picking out my china than I did the character qualities of my husband-to-be. And it just, you know, he was a nice guy, but it, it just didn't work between us. So we ended up getting a divorce when I was 24. And uh, I went straight into partying hard and um, kind of being the bad girl. I wanted to experience all that I felt I had missed out on by getting married so young. And, you know, what happened for me is that I found the next one. You know, my, my MO is meet, mate, and marry. And so this guy that uh, was working in our building, I worked for the phone company and he was working in our building. He was really cute. 
And at 24, that's what was really important to me. Uh, he had a little dog and, and I love little dogs. And so, you know, we got together and before you know it, we were, we were living together. And a couple of years after that, he asked me to marry him. And so I'm into marriage number two. Uh, he also introduced me to cocaine. And uh, I do identify as an alcoholic because I know that if you took everything away from me, that I would go back to alcohol solely. Uh, but if you've got other things to enhance it, to keep me vertical, because I am the type of alcoholic that I fall down a lot. I bump into things. I'm really clumsy. And um, so what happens was uh, we got married. Uh, we also started dealing cocaine because I'm also very economically frugal. <laughs> and uh, I saw that it was a lot, uh, uh, it was a much better deal if you buy in quantity, break it up and then make a profit. Plus you have some for yourself for free. So that was my, uh, my thought process with regards to all of that. And so that's what we did. And that's typically the men that I would marry agreed with my ideas. And so uh, we did that uh, several years down the road, uh, 1989. He got, um, he got uh, uh, his work. His work was noticing his behavior was off. And uh, it was one, one more time that he didn't come home and I got scared. I got really scared because he had taken some money to go uh, buy some drugs and he didn't come home. And I thought for sure he must have been dead. But what happened was I called his boss and I said, you know, is there any way that you can find out where he is? You know, are there trackers on the company vehicles that he's in? And It's 10 o'clock at night. And, you know, where is he? Where's my husband? You should know. And he said, look, Judy, we don't know where he is, but I really feel he's going to come home tonight. And when he does come home, let him know that you and I talked. And that he needs to check himself into a treatment plan tomorrow uh, and, and that he should not come back to work uh, because, you know, he'll get fired if he come, if he shows up. So uh, he came home. He did come home about midnight and uh, he had done all the drugs that we had purchased in quantity with somebody else's money. And so we were going to have to figure that out. But first, we had to figure out this treatment center thing because he was just really blowing a hole through my whole idea of what life was going to be like. And so we found a little picture in the, uh, what do you call it, the uh, phone book. We don't have those anymore. But the phone book with um, stick figures of a family, a husband, a wife, and two little kids. And I thought, that's us. And so uh, he checked in there the next day. And so that started our journey. I showed up uh, as the supporting, dutiful wife. Uh, and they asked me if I drank or used. And, you know, I just kind of just, you know, left it off. It's like, well, doesn't everybody, you know, it's just recreational after all. It's no big deal. And they said, well, good, since it's really not a big deal for you, then 
why don't you stop drinking and using while he's in here out of respect for his program? Because he obviously has more of a problem than you do, or at least that's what I heard them say. And uh, so I said, sure, no worries. And so I, I agreed to not drink or, or drug while he was in there. Well, I didn't keep my word. And uh, yeah, my, my girlfriend showed up and she she had a key to my house and she had a bottle of wine and a bag of powder. And we, uh, you know, we, we used that up uh, talking about him and how my life was over and I'm not going to have any fun anymore. And this is awful. And how could this happen? And uh, so I, I agreed to go there every day and go to a meeting and go to a counseling session because the quote unquote, everybody did that. And so I agreed to do what everybody else did because I don't want to stick out. And so every day I showed up for an AA meeting and I listened, but I was kind of listening for him. I was, boy, I hope he's, I hope he's hearing this. I hope he's hearing that. And uh, I wasn't really listening for myself to identify until you know, maybe 30 days in, I realized that there was something there that I could identify with. And on the 30th day, I identified as an alcoholic. And it surprised me just as much as everybody else. But he graduated from that program on that 30th day. I gave him the keys to the house, the checkbook and the kids. And I then checked in for 30 days because we both did work for the phone company and they had a good, you know, uh, program for that and they would pay for it. And so I checked in too. And that started my journey in Alcoholics Anonymous as an alcoholic, not just a bystander because, you know, for 30 days I was a bystander. Although somebody did about... I don't know, five, seven days into this journey, somebody did across a picnic table, come and sit down and ask me what my sobriety date was. And I told them, oh, I didn't have one. I, I wasn't one of you. I didn't have that problem. And he said, well, then what's your sobriety date? You know, how long have you been sober? And first of all, I thought that he was um, just a real pain in, pain in the neck. And because he just wouldn't leave until I answered his question. So I kind of figured it out. And on New Year's Eve 1989 was when my then husband went into the program. And I was at home by myself uh, with the kids upstairs sleeping. And I was feeling sorry for myself. I know I, I had a glass of wine and a little bit of that white powder and I'm not sure if I even finished a glass of wine. I'm not sure what time it was. I'm not, I definitely don't think I got high or, or, or drunk or anything like that. I just had something. And then I went to bed and felt sorry for myself. But because I wasn't looking at the clock, I don't know if it was past midnight. So this guy that I have referred to over the years in not very nice terms, Actually, I've come to regard him as an angel now that uh, he made me figure out that sobriety date. So in my mind, not that I talked to anybody about it, but I was counting my days. 
just in case I needed them. And so we figured out that crystal clean, crystal clear, my sobriety date could be January 2nd if I chose to keep that. And, um, and that, that that was a clean date. Um, not quite so sure about January 1st because I wasn't looking at the clock. So January 2nd it is. And I'm starting to count days. Not making a big deal out of it. Not telling anybody about it. But I'm listening to what you guys are talking about. And then, like I said, by, by day number 30, that was the day I identified as an alcoholic for the first time. So I went through my first 30 days in meetings without raising my hand. But because I had stayed sober, nobody really made an issue out of me raising my hand for 30 days. So I never had to do that in a meeting. And um, they told me to get a sponsor. They didn't tell me really what to look for, or at least I didn't hear that. I didn't hear any kind of directions as far as how to pick one. But there were just these little old ladies with gray hair in the meetings that I was going to at the hospital. And um, so I would ask one of them and nothing would happen. Nothing would change in my relationship with them. I would see them at the morning meetings and that was it. And um, I didn't ask them what I should be doing and they didn't tell me what I should be doing. So I'd ask somebody else and same thing. And next week I'd ask somebody else and I just didn't really understand this sponsorship thing. But um, later on, maybe a couple years later on, I, um, I did kind of play around with the sponsorship thing, trying to find someone to mentor me. That's, that's how I thought of sponsorship was a mentor. And um, I didn't really find anybody till I was about um, almost a year sober. And I had found this woman. I had heard that this woman was coming to a meeting and that she was what they called a step Nazi. And although I don't like that term, that's what they called her. So uh, I went to that meeting, I listened to her share, and she definitely knew what she was talking about. And so after the meeting, I asked her to be my sponsor. And uh, she uh, took on my case and told me that before my first birthday that I needed to do my fourth and fifth step with her. And I think I just had a couple months until that time. And I just remember it was Christmas time when I was sitting in her living room. And the Christmas tree was up and all the decorations. And I was doing my fifth step with her in her living room. So it was before my my first AA birthday that, that we completed that. And then we went on to do six and seven and eight and nine. And I never really got very far with the ninth step with her. Um, I remember my eighth step was on this really pretty piece of embossed uh writing paper that was maybe four inches by six inches with little embossed flowers all around it and her writing was very tiny but my list my entire eight step was on that piece of paper and I have to tell you uh, about 18 years later uh when I got the sponsor that I have now I did another fourth step with her and uh, she handed me a four-page document, a regular notebook paper, no frills, no embossed flowers this time. 
but um, a lot more depth and weight. And so uh, what happened with that first fourth step was uh, that woman, her her life kind of changed. She was in uh, law school and she needed to make a change to a lot of her scheduled meetings. And I just didn't want to make a change. By this time, I was almost two years sober. I didn't want to make a change. And so I changed sponsors. And because before COVID, sponsorship was, I felt for me, it was a lot different. It was very much in person. Somebody that you saw at meetings, you'd sit next to, you talk to at meetings, that kind of thing. And, and with COVID, it's just kind of blown it all open where, you know, it's not unusual to have long distance sponsorship. And um, prior to COVID, though, uh, you know, my current sponsor lives in a, in a different state than I do. And so she and I had been doing long distance sponsorship for many years before um, COVID hit. But getting back to uh, when I was two years sober, I changed sponsors. Uh, I took on some other service commitments and that's when uh my my that husband husband number two uh he and I uh separated and our marriage was just going really badly and there was just a lot of pain involved and uh he cheated on me. I didn't I didn't know it at the time. I should have, but I didn't. And uh and then our son uh gotten a horrible car accident, car versus bicycle, and he had a major head trauma. And we didn't know it at the time. I think it was 1994. But uh, he was a premature baby, and preemies are predisposed to uh, epilepsy. And if they have a major, if they have a head trauma, And so he was six weeks early and he got hit by a car while he was riding his bicycle and he was blown 30 feet. And apparently that was enough to, you know, induce the epilepsy. So at eight and a half years old, and they didn't know it then. You talk about medical miracles. uh, They didn't know that he had epilepsy. They didn't know that that's what was wrong with him. Aside from a broken femur and the head injuries, they just, you know, they they weren't quite sure what the head injury was uh, or how it was going to affect him. And so he was in a hospital for another two months uh, getting treatment for, you know, he was in a full body cast for the broken femur, you know, from his armpits down to his, you know, ankles. And so that was really difficult. Uh, Like I said, you know, my husband and I split up and it was a a tough time. But Alcoholics Anonymous surrounded me at that time. And I was never alone. Uh, I would be driven to meetings because I was just, you know, I was on adrenaline. I was living at the hospital. Our daughter uh, was being taken care of by neighbors and friends and and I would go back and forth but it was just a really really difficult time and but 
you know, I stayed sober through it. What would a drink or a drug fix in that situation? At least I, I had enough of the step work inside of me that I knew that nothing could make this any better by drinking or using. And so I just really clung to the steps. I clung to my sponsor. You know, I, I used the fellowship. Those people were so good to me. They never, I was never alone in the hospital. There was always somebody coming or going, helping take care of something, this or that. And, uh, you know, we made it through. Dylan came home in a, uh, with a hospital bed. And our lives changed. You know, I had a, had a good job where I was traveling and, and doing uh, really well financially. And I had to quit that job. And it was just, you know, it was just uh, financially very trying. Came home to like seven bounce checks and didn't know how it was going to work. You know, the husband is is leaving or he's left. And it was just, it was a hard time. But, you know, we get through it. We get through it. And what happened was... um you know, Dylan got better. Uh, he was in a, a, a wheelchair at school for a long period of time. I think he was in the third grade. I think it was the rest of his third grade year. He, you know, he was handicapped. And then, uh, and then we had to deal with these seizures that would happen from time to time. And they were irregular and they weren't all the same. And, and nobody was talking about epilepsy. They were talking about learning disabilities. And, you know, they just didn't know. Um, it turns out that uh, he was, I think, 18 or 19 when they finally discovered we, could, we got another doctor uh, in Arizona. And that's the doctor that told us about the um the thing with the uh the predisposition for epilepsy if they're a premature baby so you know i mean it's what 10 years later we find this out crazy so anyway he struggled with epilepsy until he was about 20 21 years old and uh that was kind of like a uh a back thread of our whole story is, is his epilepsy and his continued grand mal seizures and uh, car accidents and surgeries and helicopter airlifts from accidents. And it was just tough. And I was a single mom for most of it. Uh, their dad would come in and out. We would try to make our marriage work, but um, it was just too hard. It was just too hard. And, and finally, he stayed gone. And uh, so the kids are, are growing and, and getting through high school. But it's just a really hard time for all of us. Uh, but I, I kept going to my meetings. And when the kids were little, they, they went with me. And they, they sat at a table in the back and colored. Or as they grew up, they did their homework. Um, but I was also told by women there, I mean, I learned how to raise my kids through Alcoholics Anonymous. I had to take parenting classes. 
I had to uh, at the local hospital because I was a yeller and a screamer. I didn't know how to do it any differently. And so I, I learned, you know, I showed up and I, I was taught how to be a good mom and the principles and boundaries. Oh, my gosh. I didn't know any of that stuff. And uh, so I'm going along with my program and my recovery and <clears throat> being a single mom. I didn't get involved in dating because I just didn't want to add any more problems to my life. And so the kids are now in high school and graduating. And uh, I'm thinking about selling the big house because I can't afford it. It's bleeding me. And what happened was, um, you know, it's like a God shot. This realtor called me and said, you know, have you ever thought about selling your house or would you like to live somewhere else? And, you know, I, I said, yes. And it was a cold call. And I know that that's crazy because I knew realtors, but this lady lived down the street and she promised to show the house personally. Cause I had a big dog that was part greyhound and she was a runner. So she promised to, you know, personally show all the, uh, all the appointments and, you know, it worked. Uh, the house got sold within a month. And I, um, I relocated down to the desert and I, you know, my sponsor said, you know, what are you doing? I thought you were going to move to the beach. Cause that's where I wanted to move. I wanted to move to the beach, but that just didn't happen. And I was going to be homeless. So my brother came, picked me up and he had a house in the desert. Our parents had relocated to the desert. So here I am moving into a brand new house in the desert and uh I just thought oh my gosh you know what I don't know anybody here but AA was there I didn't know them yet but I I really threw myself into working with others because now I'm a single woman I I don't have the kids and I really thought you know I'm just going to go to women's meetings and I'm going to meet these people and create a community around me and do what I've been taught. And what happened was um, I made a lot of friends. I, uh, I started sponsoring a lot of women. I got really active and my life changed. I was happy. I woke up one day and I realized I'm not worried about what anybody thinks about me anymore. I was so consumed with what I looked like, you know, what what size I was, what clothes I had, uh, you know, what my hair and my makeup looked like. I uh, I was just so self-absorbed in my own personal appearance and what others would think of me. And, you know, it turns out that nobody's really cares. Nobody's really thinking about me. And uh, I just, through doing the work, through, through working the steps with my sponsor, and, oh, by the way, she held me personally responsible for my ninth step. 
and uh, did it in a way that I'd never done it before. It's probably the biggest gift of love that anybody's ever shown me. That, uh, you know, that four-page document I told you about had 62 amends on there that I needed to make. And before she handed me that document, she made a copy of it for herself. And she kept track of the amends that I was making. And so when I would write a letter, she would correct it because, uh, you know, as you can probably tell from this recording, I kind of jump around with a story and I go around in circles a few times before I get to the point. But uh, she made me get to the point so that these were the approved words for me to say to this person, to make amends, to build a bridge to a relationship, to healing a relationship that had I had damaged. And so I, I was doing my amends and it took me years, years to finish them. And I have to tell you in uh, probably 2000, 10 or so, I, uh, you know, so that's uh, 20 years sober. Uh, let's see, maybe it wasn't, maybe, maybe it was, two, yeah, 2010. I might have started dating again. And, you know, my sponsor said, you know, I've already had two failed marriages. Why, you know, it might be best to finish my amends so that. I can actually have a, a relationship that has a better chance of lasting so that I don't take my same bad habits and character defects and shortcomings and wrong beliefs into another relationship uh, and just do more damage in life. So, you know, she said all the right things and disturbed me about my alcoholism uh, every week when we would have our scheduled weekly call. Uh, and of course I can call her any other time and she always encourages me to do that, but rarely would I, would I call her more than a couple times a week. And, but we got through everything and we, um, you know, we, there's, there's just this new way of life opened up for me and, she said that I should really start going to mixed meetings if uh, I expected to get into a relationship with a man and that uh, I'm a bad alcoholic from her experience with me and that I should perhaps look at dating someone who has a good program and uh, is in the rooms and active in Alcoholics Anonymous and not just active with activities you know, doing stuff around the rooms, but actually in sponsorship and listen to these people share and watch what they do, not just what they say, but watch what they do. Uh, you know, she reminded me that I should be listening with my eyes, not just my ears, because I would get really uh, just carried away with um, romanticizing everything. You know, our big book talks about that we, you know, that, that we shouldn't we shouldn't live in the clouds, you know, that our feet should be fully planted. And uh, you know, and and I found myself very much uh living in, in the romance of life and 
you know, like I said before, in the fast, quick, now, more, all that stuff. You know, I loved, you know, the 30-minute TV shows or hour-long, you know, movie of the week where, you know, they meet, they mate, and they marry. Or, or they just get married right away. I was all about getting married again. And, you know, she suggested that I, you know, unless I wanted to change teams and um, be interested in women, that I should start going to mixed meetings. So I did that. I've, uh, I've been working with this woman since I was uh, almost 18 years sober. So I've been with her over 14 years now. And, uh, you know, as we say, I'm well into my 15th year of working with her and working with someone who knows the book, who sponsors regularly. And, uh, you know, she knows what she's doing. She's taught me, you know, I, I like to tell the women I sponsor that I don't just sponsor women. I sponsor sponsors. Um, everything that I do with them is duplicatable and that's what I want them to do. I want them to know the book and to be able to transmit that information to another woman so that it can help her to stay sober. Um, so anyway, what happened for me was that, uh, I was secretary of a big speaker meeting and, um, this man from Los Angeles came to speak and I had known him. I'd been going to a big meeting in Los Angeles for about 18 years before I moved to the desert. And I recognized him from there. I, I wasn't sure about his name, but I did recognize him and I, I welcomed him warmly and uh, sat next to him while he talked. And I felt like I was on a roller coaster ride, laughing and crying and just having just a great time while he did his share. And I even uh, listened to the tape that was recorded. I, I went into the library and I borrowed it overnight. I listened to it again because it was really fun. And he had mentioned in that talk that his, his wife had passed away earlier that year. And, uh, but that he was with her for 38 years and he took care of her when she was ill. And he talked about taking care of his mom when she had Alzheimer's and, you know, he just had a lot of character qualities that uh, I had not been familiar with in the men that I dated or the men that I married before. And uh, through doing my ninth step inventory, uh, and my ninth step amends, and you know, the inventories throughout throughout the steps. I mean, my whole life is about inventory, and. Um, you know, it's uh, the fourth step I, I, is the big one. And it's not just the resentment, but it's the sex inventory. It's the, you know, harms done others. It's the fear inventory. Uh, and then most importantly, the, the ideal, you know, sex relationship, the, the ideal relationship at the end of that is so important to do. And, and I haven't done those before. And so... That four-page document that I talked to you guys about has been so important in my life. You know, I've referred to it so many times. And when this man came into my life, I dug out that fourth step again, and I looked at it. And I looked at the ideal relationship, the ideal sex relationship. And he had, even though he wasn't my type, he didn't look 
like the men that I've been dating, uh, he sure was fun and he had character and he had, um, he was reliable and he was dependable and, and he was honest and trustworthy. And, you know, these were character qualities that I didn't realize were so valuable. And so I was a little bit interested, you know, it was, I was a little bit curious about finding out more about this guy, but, um, you know, I actually thought he was dating someone else. And so I just kind of put it out of my mind. And then, uh, another woman, uh, who was in that meeting with me, she said, you know, why don't you ask him out on like for lunch? And I thought, oh, my goodness, you know, I am 57 years old. I am. If this man can't figure out how to ask me out, he's not the man for me. And so um, so I just let that go. And uh, a few months after that was our big uh, desert convention, the annual powwow. And, um, you know, so here I am, single, single mom. Uh, and, uh, really watching my pennies and I did not buy a banquet ticket because they're expensive. They're like $45. And I just thought, you know what? I'm just going to go to the convention. I'm going to hang out with my girlfriend, but I was a girl scout and I learned how to be prepared. So I did pack a pretty dress and some high heels and a curling iron and some makeup into my beach bag just in case. And, um, I hung out at the pool with my girlfriends. And when I was walking back, uh, kind of midday to do something inside the hotel, I bumped into this guy and, uh, you know, he said, hello, and seemed like I bumped into him again. Uh, and it took him a while, but he did stop me at one point and asked me if I'd you know, if I'd like to go out on a date with him sometime soon, sometime in the future. It was very vague. But I got excited about it, and I said yes. And uh, what happened was the um, the banquet was the next day, and so I looked on the board, and there was a banquet ticket for sale, and so I contacted that person, and I bought the banquet ticket. And uh, that next day, I was able to get cleaned up in my girlfriend's hotel room, and put on my pretty dress and my high heels. And I went to the banquet thinking that I might run into this guy again. And maybe he might be a little bit more definite next time he talked to me. And what happened was uh, I saw him and uh, he saw me and we walked to the banquet together. Uh, I didn't notice that he took a few steps behind me uh, once he asked me for my sobriety date. It turns out he's got about five days more than I do, so he's really happy about that. I guess he did the little happy dance uh, when he found out, you know, how all my stats, you know, how old I was, how much time I had, all that stuff, you know, that it was age appropriate and sobriety appropriate and kind of all those things that we look for. And even though I wasn't his type either, I guess he was excited about getting to know me as well. And uh, we we talked from, you know, 
off and on during that banquet. We weren't at the same table, but he seemed to find his way over to my table from time to time. And after the banquet, we ran into each other again and, and spent a couple hours sitting out by the pool telling each other our fifth steps. Because by this time, I had been dating and I wasn't interested in another friend. I had a lot of friends. And if you wanted to date me, then show up as a man, own it, and date me. And so he did. He actually asked me if he could court me. And I have never had anybody use those words before with me. And so, of course, I said yes. I was completely flattered. And uh, he walked me to my car. And I, I asked him, it's a big parking lot. I asked him if he wanted to ride to his car. He said yes, he was on the other side. And so we drove over to his car. And before he left, he he kissed me. And apparently I kissed him back. And that was the beginning of a fast and furious AA love relationship because we went from zero to 60, like every good alcoholic. And, uh, you know, we did not sleep together for 90 days because that's what we'd been taught. And that's what we tell our sponsees. And so that's what we got to do too. And it was just, um, it was just a lot of fun. And that uh, if you look at the dates of how that all happened, I think I kind of remember. I think May 10th, he showed up at the speaker meeting. June 5th was the uh, powwow, was the convention. And we looked back on our paperwork several, several years ago. I put my house up for sale on July 26th. So that's you know, what, not even two months after going, it wasn't even a first date. July 5th wasn't, the, or June 5th wasn't even a first date. That was just the powwow where we talked. And then somewhere between June 5th and July 26th, we had made a decision to live together and to get married. You know, he didn't, he didn't ask me to get married right away because he had this idea where he wanted to do it but we were together and he bought a ring and so I knew that it was happening sometime soon and uh, so what ended up happening was uh, he did ask me he did propose earlier than expected and in September I went to Portland Oregon to see my daughter who has now become our daughter. He has inherited my family and he he owns it and he just completely immerses himself in being a father and you know a son-in-law and a brother and just this whole family that he doesn't that he didn't have before me. And uh we got married mid-November. So it's been, you know, it's been a wild ride. Uh, we have had eight years of, you know, marriage, sobriety, living, loving, learning, changing, getting older. It's a, a, a big jump that, you know, we have both gotten older 
spent, we've been together, surprise, surprise. But what happens between 57 and 66, and he's 10 years older than I am, it's a difference. And we have a, a different life than we did when, you know, when we got together. But it is a beautiful life. It is a full life. Um, we're not quite as um, adventurous. <laughs> I mean, we were doing zip lines and all kinds of crazy uh, activities, athletic activities that we just don't do. I've got, I've had two knee replacements. And so it's just a little bit different now, but uh, we're still very active. We travel a lot. Uh, we live part-time in uh, Puerto Vallarta and it's, it's amazing. You know, we both sponsor a lot of people. We spend um, a lot of our time doing sponsorship, but that's, that's what the big book tells me that that's how I'm going to find happy, joyous and free is by getting involved with others by my constant thought of others is what's going to keep me happy. And the freedom that I have through sobriety, through recovery, is far greater than anything that I could have ever imagined. Um, the price that's paid for me to talk on the phone and share my experience, strength, and hope with another woman and help her to identify and help her to feel comfortable and help her to find hope is so valuable that it it changes my life. It um, it adds purpose and meaning. Um, like the book says, it has depth and weight. And you know, I'm so glad that I have chosen to stay here because that's that's my choice. You know, that's what I get to choose today: a spiritual way of life or an alcoholic death. And, um, you know, I'm grateful that God keeps me sober and that, um, you know, I have a plan of action. I have tools that I can use every day and I need to use them every day. I do use them every day. And that's why I believe I'm here is because I have incorporated this way of life into you know, that, that rat bastard that wants to kill me, my head. And I've just, you know, basically chosen an, another way of life. And uh, for that, I'm truly grateful. I have a life beyond, beyond my, my biggest dreams. And I'm so grateful for it. So I hope that you enjoyed this. I hope you got something out of it. And I hope you stay sober. Take good care. Thank you, Judy, and happy birthday. Today is your actual birthday, which is super cool. So yeah, happy birthday. Did you have a good day? Thanks. Yeah, really good day. Good. Really good day. Filled with lots of love, lots of phone calls. You know, I've also been taught to call my sponsor first thing and thank her for her her work that, that she's put into me and um and the people that I love and who have helped me stay sober. So, yeah, it's great to reach out and not always expect people to be calling me. That's another thing I've learned in sobriety is to, that I'm the one that makes the calls out. 
Yeah, I've heard that before, and it makes so much sense. Uh, mm-hmm. It's the opposite of being the victim of, I'm going to wait around until I can be the victim and tell you all the people that didn't call me. Right, exactly. So, exactly. So I have a couple questions for you. So you didn't outright mention your husband, but he is another episode on Keep Coming Back. Mm-hmm. And it's really sweet. So is it okay if I connect the two episodes? Of course. Okay, so he's episode 88, Ben. Okay. And he talked about that night at the convention as well. So it's it was really sweet to hear. It was just like a love story. It was a sobriety (laughs) story, but as a love story and connecting both of your stories, we get to see like both sides of it. So I just want to confirm, and I may have to cut this out later. You put your house up for sale before you actually were intimate with him? Yeah. That's amazing and special. Yeah. Yeah. Now, you know, I mean, let's be honest here. There's lots of creative ways. (laughs) (laughs) If all else fails, we really creative. (laughs) Right. So we can, we, without the actual active sex sure sure you you can still pleasure each other (laughs) we just now went to rated r Um, (laughs) there we go that's sweet that's sweet though i love that i love that love story i love that when you know you know and my i look back at my relationship with my husband and it reminds me a lot of of yours he was saying i love you to me like after he, I found an email. I'm like, you only knew me for three weeks and you were already saying, I love you. Like, you know me, but we knew. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, at least it seemed like we did. It's worked out so far. Yeah. So wonderful story. I love your pace and your, your, um, I don't know. It's like a beautiful calmness about you that I want a piece of. So I have a couple questions. I actually do have questions. Uh, One thing that you had mentioned was the Christian community when you were in high school Mm -hmm. and you changed the way you were spending your time and who you were spending your time with, but you still didn't feel like you fit in. And I'm wondering if you can summarize or think about the difference between not fitting in with that community yet you're able to fit in with the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous? Mm, That's a good question. Um, I think that for me, uh, and this is true with sponsorship as well, is that um, I can, I can be present, but stay hidden. You know, I can, I can be with you but yet not be, not let you in, not be intimate, not be transparent. And I think that that's what was happening with the Christian community is that there wasn't anyone that, um, there wasn't anyone like a sponsor who I could tell everything to and not feel like, oh, you're being weird. You know, why do you want to talk to me about all this stuff you know why do you have questions about all this stuff you know you should eat that still even even now answering the question I can't even imagine 
um, a Christian community that would uh, spend the time and the effort that sponsorship requires, you know, good sponsorship requires that you be responsible for, you know, knowing somebody else's story. Like you can't, you can't keep them sober, but it is your responsibility to know where alcoholism shows up in their life, how it presents itself so that you can help that person to identify that, Hey, you know, you better be careful. You're going down a dark alley. You've been there before. Remember when blah, blah, blah. And so you know, I don't know anyone in the church community that would care to know that much about me. I don't know. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, I like the way you explained the being there yet being invisible. And when somebody knows you, they know you and you... It makes sense to me, and I. It reminds me of of the people that come on here, and they and they share their whole truth, and they don't hold anything back. And that's how we help one another is by being completely vulnerable. And I don't know that there's that many right. safe spaces, right? But the way it's set up in in the fellowship is, it's, I think, usually a very safe space to be completely. Completely yeah. honest. Yeah. And people know you and not judge right. you and help you and feel safe enough to have them call you out when they're like, well, right. you actually did say that. And then you ended up doing it anyway. Do you remember last year? Oh, yeah. Right. I did do that, huh? <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, and that's what I love about sponsorship. My sponsor can see through my stuff so fast. It's like a laser beam. I was like, nope, nope, nope. <laughs> and, uh, you know, my good ideas are pretty crazy sometimes. Um, yeah. So shifting gears a little bit to our final question. For the alcoholic out there listening, perhaps suffering, what message would you like to leave them with? Mm, that's good. But there is hope here that you can change. And that if you do the work, you will change. And that you just, you know, part of being honest is telling the truth out loud to another human being. Because sitting with what's in my head and keeping it in my head, you know, it it doesn't get to see the light of day. It doesn't get to find its truth and, and either, you know, fly into my heart or fly out uh, and far away from me because it's not the truth. Um, and so, you know, you just need to find someone that you can be honest with and talk to and don't worry about what they think or what they, you know, what, what they might say to you. 
it's important that you take action to get the help that you need. For more information, read the first 164 pages of the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous or visit keepcomingback.net.